Uh, we find Jesus here midway through a dinner with the most religious people in town. These are the ones with the highest reputations for holiness, those who know their Bibles best and spend hours trying to discern what is right and proper and spend their efforts trying to prevent people from a moral and spiritual decay in an increasingly secular environment. The Pharisees and the lawyers at this dinner, they are the spiritual gurus, the religious experts. And yet they are, at the same time, the very people that Jesus, the Son of God, pronounces the heaviest woes upon. A woe really being a declaration of heartbreak and condemnation. Uh, Jesus does not congratulate them, but he pronounces woes upon them. And what this tells us is that there is a particular kind of evil that can be found amongst the most religious and the most churched and within the ones who seem to know the most about God which is the evil of hypocrisy, where the outside does not match the inside at all, and where religion is more of a show than it is a vitality within. Jesus elsewhere calls people like this whitewashed tombs in Matthew 23, 27, because of this inconsistency, that so often it can be that religious people will appear all clean and tidy on the exterior and yet within be a casket housing the stench of spiritual death inside of the heart. Religion can quickly and easily sour when it is not genuine nor is it real. Now, I don't think that God gives us texts like this to us so that we can point the finger and shake our heads and think, I am so glad that I am not like that group of people over there. I think instead God gives to us texts like these so that we might check ourselves and to see if any bit of our own reflection, our own likeness, any similarity is found upon us with them so that we might properly see ourselves and root anything out which may be woeful within. Because it is easy, brothers and sisters, to honor God with our lips and yet to have our hearts far from him. And because our lips do honor him, not to feel the perilous position at all. This is really a warning to the religious, uh, perhaps a wake-up call to the church, who can sometimes strangely be Jesus' biggest adversaries. And so at this point in the meal, Jesus has already called out the Pharisees for an externals-only religion in verse 38, priority reversing in verse 42, a vain, ego-driven lifestyles in verse 43, and spreading the contamination of their false religion in verse 44. This is a very awkward dinner. Uh, Jesus is insulting the ones who invited him into their house, but it is necessarily so. And this is where we pick up mid-meal in verse 45, and we read there. One of the lawyers answered him, teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. I want you to notice first that Jesus does insult people when necessary, and I think that that is important to note. You know, sometimes our categories for Jesus uh, do not include communication like what we're seeing in these verses here. Uh, but first, the lawyers, these are not courtroom cross-examining lawyers. These are experts of the Hebrew law, theologians, so to speak. Uh, they try and take the commandments of God and create tradition for how we ought to live our lives. They can be Pharisees, but are separate from them in the way that the lawyers really train the Pharisees, much like perhaps a seminary PhD would train future pastors and preachers. 
And so as Jesus is pronouncing three woes upon the Pharisees, one lawyer speaks up and pretty much says, don't catch us in the crossfire, Jesus, because when you insult the Pharisees, you are really insulting us with them, to which Jesus responds with three specific custom-catered woes upon the lawyers as well, because he actually does intend to insult For Jesus is more concerned with souls than he is about feelings and cares here more for the truth than he does about manners. You know, I think there's a a sentiment in wider Christianity, perhaps an unspoken rule of sorts, to never be offensive and to never step on anyone's toes and to never make any hearer of the word of God feel any kind of discomfort at all. Only winsomeness all the time, never tell anyone that they are wrong or are in the wrong, that if you do those kinds of things, that that is simply not Christ-like. And we just don't see this unspoken rule being followed by Jesus at all, nor is that rule followed by any of his true mouthpieces throughout history. His prophets, his preachers, they don't do that. And we'll look at that in verse 49. Now, of course, uh, unnecessary offense is useless. Uh, An offensive personality doesn't really contribute anything. To be intentionally rude without any purpose behind it is not being advocated here at all. But there is such a thing as a necessary offense. And Jesus here communicates just that. He calls a spade a spade and a sin a sin. He isn't fakely kind, nor does he lead people to believe that they are in a good spot when they are actually not in a good spot. When things are not okay, Jesus doesn't pretend like they are okay. Proverbs chapter 27, verses 5 and 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, profuse are the kisses of an enemy. And there are, quite frankly, uh, many supposed preachers of the Word of God who are profuse with kisses for their congregation and unfaithful to wound, which would prove a more genuine address of friendship. Jeremiah 6, 14, speaking of the false prophets, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Jesus and his prophets, his spokesmen, they don't fake peace when there is none. And it is actually one of the most telling characteristic of wicked leadership that only speaks peace and never tells it straight, who only profusely give kisses and stroke egos and are never faithful enough to wound like someone who actually cares. So much so that this is a distinguishing feature of false religion. It's repeated over in Jeremiah 8, 11 and Ezekiel chapter 13. But people, uh, we just don't always want that straightness, even when we might need it. But so often it is that what we want is not actually what we truly need. Isaiah 30, 10, the people there, they desire this, what they want. Say to the seers, don't see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. That's what people generally want, not what people generally need. You'll notice that Jesus does not speak only smooth things. It's the same thing for the New Testament church as well. 2 Timothy 4.2, Paul writes there to preach the word. In verse 3, he explains, for the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. You ever have an itch in your ear after the beach and you just want to swirl a Q-tip all up in it? Give me what I want. Scratch that itch. Not what I need. But Jesus shows to us here that it does take a particular kind of love and boldness and conviction and strength to insult people for their own good and to not give to them what they want, 
but to give to them what they actually need. Now, I think a lot of church growth current gurus might rebuke Jesus' manner here. Uh, Don't do what you're doing, Jesus. That's how you shrink a church. Perhaps you should try and win them with kindness instead. Find some common ground. Friendship, evangelism, preach the gospel, use words when necessary. But I think we'd rather take our cues from Jesus uh, than we do from anyone else. Now, for those of us here who may lean more uh, combative and confrontational by nature, regardless of what Jesus does, I also want you to notice that Jesus speaks like this to the religious, to the ones who should know better. And this is after he had already demonstrated and authenticated himself and his authority and his love. I mean, there's lepers who are now clean, paralytics who are walking, demons have been cast out. And so this upfront approach does have a particular context. And I would encourage you who are on the other side, perhaps, to not use texts like these to be obnoxiously rude out there. Don't go yelling into the drive-thru speaker at McD's, repent. That's not what this text is telling us to do. They knew who he was. No more had to be proven. And so these words are very appropriate. And therefore, Jesus does not hold back at all, even when they say we're insulted. Jesus goes ahead and insults them more. Because again, it's for their own good and the good of the people around them to alert them to their own precarious position and not rest in some kind of religiosity for eternal comfort and peace when there actually is no peace. Jesus pronounces heartbreak and condemnation in these woes, and he's doing what God had really sent his mouthpieces to do, and that is to wake people up and to alert them to their true condition, to proclaim what needs to be said so that there might be a response that leads to life. Jesus and his preachers, they don't ever proclaim peace when there is none. They sound the alarm first so that true peace might be found in repentance. Repentance meaning to turn away from how we've been living and turn back to God himself. And so there's a mercy to Jesus' harshness to warn people at this dinner and to warn people for generations after the fact of a hollow religion and a hypocritical faith so that we might flee from it. Jesus does insult on purpose sometimes, even when his hearers don't want to hear it, because, again, he's more concerned with souls than he is with feelings and cares here more for the truth than he does about manners. Verse 46, look at the first woe against these lawyers. And he said, woe to you lawyers also, for you load people up with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers." There is a kind of religion that is more about policing people than it is about helping people. Where Christianity can become more of a burden than Christ is actually a blessing. Putting out there instead an impossible standard to follow, which we may not even follow our own selves. That's not the intention of the law. That's not the motive of the word of God, whom these lawyers were supposedly experts of. Listen to Psalm 19.7. The psalmist dwelling on the law. He says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That's what the law is supposed to do. It's supposed to revive our souls. Verse 10, the rules of the Lord, more to be desired are they than gold. You guys want gold? Inflation time? More to be desired are the rules of the Lord than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Do you feel that joyous desire over the word of the Lord? 
Psalm 119, the law of the Lord is repeated over and over again and again as a blessing and a delight. It's the longest chapter in the entire Bible, and it's all about the law of God being beautiful to us and not a burden upon us. Yahweh's religion has always been designed to be just like this. Jesus says much the same in Matthew eleven twenty eight. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest. Rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Now, why is this the case? The sum of the law and the prophets has always been to love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your mind, all your soul, all your strength, to love your neighbor as yourself. This is Deuteronomy 6, 4, reiterated by Jesus in our Luke 10, 27. The law prescribed had just set the bumper pads, set the boundaries of how to enjoy this triune God in relationship and to maximize that enjoyment. Just like a marriage is not meant to be defined solely as a check mark of rules. No adultery, check. Uh, share the bank account, check. Take out the trash, check. Make sacrifices, check, check, check. I guess this is called love. No, but some of these principles help to root out selfishness and dividedness so that self-giving love can be cultivated and so that love and that relationship would be genuinely enjoyed to the nth degree. God's call to his people has always been to enjoy this love primarily and that this love would be the key and the motivation for all holy living, which just fuels that relationship to be enjoyed more and more. And this is what every spiritual guru and leader was supposed to bring the people to understand, to view him, not just law, not law as an ends in and of itself, but the law as a means and an arena to enjoy this God more and more. But what can happen over time in religion, as it does with everything else in life, is that we tend to just drop our eyes a bit. And then it transforms into something else. You know, we're reading as a family, Kevin DeYoung's new children's book. It's, it's been a good devotional so far, the biggest story, uh, Bible story book, Kevin DeYoung, the thicker one. But he writes this when talking about the Tower of Babel. He says, unfortunately, people often want to be known more than they want to know God. Unfortunately, people often want to be known more than they want to know God. This is why we chase wealth, prestige, position, status, talent, fame, and then pass these same patterns on to our children because we want to be known more than we want to know God. And this really has been the human dilemma since the fall of humanity. Look at me, not look at him. And what can happen in religious contexts is that rather than fall in love with the Lord, that his love, his word is more than gold and understand how this is sweeter than honey straight from the comb because we can know and enjoy this God. What can so easily happen in religious context is more, I want to be known. And in the first century, that meant fancy religious robes and long prayers and long lists of hard rules that if you don't do them all, then you fall lower in the spiritual rankings. And don't you wish you were more like me because I'm higher than you in these rankings and I actually don't want you to rise to my level. But if you do, it better be because you're a clone of me. Because again, the human heart is such that we want to be known more, more than we want to know God. And this is what the scribes and Pharisees are specializing in. 
We burden everyone else down with traditions way too difficult to carry, and people are never going to call that stuff honey. More and more rules on top of principles. No work on the Sabbath. That's a command from God. That's really our own good to worship him, enjoy rest. We experience that love when we enjoy the Sabbath, focused on him, restoration for body and soul. And they look at that and they say, well, let's define work then. You can't tie a knot at home. That's work. You can't put out a fire. That's work. And we're going to hold people to what we say, even when it goes beyond what the Bible says. And then the Sabbath which was for rest and enjoyment of the Lord and restoration. They made it a burden to carry where we perform and we police rather than a day of worship to enjoy the Lord in. You know, I remember uh, scolding Braden about five years ago. I, I think, I can't remember uh, what it was for. And he was mad at me and frustrated and, and he was having a hard time trying to communicate that frustration and he, and he points a finger and he says, you, you, you're the government. I don't know what he was saying that he knew, but uh, point taken. You know, the, the IRS, bureaucracy, unending pages of rules, and not even knowing what the point of it all is, but you better do it if you want to be in the right. And only a lawyer of the law, an expert, can tell you how to do it exactly right, and they're not even trying to help you with it. And this is religion in the worst way. It, it's a hypocrisy. It's what is called legalism. It harms people more than it helps people. It's more about policing them than it is about helping them to bask in the glory of God's love. And, and this is when Christianity can become more of a burden then as well than it is a blessing. When we put out there some kind of legalistic standard to follow, which we may not even follow our own selves, but then we can look down upon others who don't do what we want them to do. And so we exalt ourselves to be known rather than to know God and help others to know him as well. You know, I think a checkpoint for us, just in general, is to see if our hearts are becoming competitive and proud, that we're always looking around to see where we measure up. We're always trying to draw attention to ourselves with this or that, and especially with religious performance. You gotta make sure I show my face at church every now and then so people know I'm legit. Let me post about how much I'm reading my Bible. We know we're into performance if we become upset when people surpass us or they don't follow our suit. If that's happening right here, we gotta come back to square one. Is it that we're like that or that we're more gentle and lowly in heart like our Savior, bold and gentle, because we want dearly for people to know the love of God that we are currently enjoying ourselves and are willing, therefore, to help other people get there. The difference is night and day. And so the lawyers uh, place demands upon people and don't even help them. They make religion more of a burden than it is a blessing. Rules, 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 and no actual relationship with our God of love. That's really the gist of the first woe. Verse 47, look at the second woe upon the lawyers, and we read there. Woe to you, <clears throat> for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. 
There is a kind of religion that celebrates the idea of the Word of God, but does not actually want to hear or respond rightly to the Word of God. They like the concept of the Word in theory, but not actually in practice, and that kind of religion is going to be found eternally guilty. Uh, J.C. Riley states it, we learn from our Lord's words how much more easy it is to admire dead saints than living ones. And really, that's because the dead ones were talking to somebody else, not me. The living ones talk to us directly. What the majority of the prophets did was preach against the people of Israel because they'd left Yahweh. They sought out other things. And God, in his grace and in his mercy, he would send, send a spokesman to the people to call them to come back, to call them to repentance, to warn them of the trajectory they were currently on. And historically, the people of Israel, for the most part, they did not respond well. They killed those prophets because they did not like their message. No one likes to be told that they are living in the wrong way or that they are at odds with the Lord Almighty. And so they reject them and they kill them. But generations after the fact, people would look back and venerate the prophets. And they would build these fancy tombs for them that likely cost a fortune because it's easier to honor the memory of a prophet in the past who spoke to different people way back when than to listen to the words of a prophet directed at you today. And we can so easily love things like sound scriptural exposition and talk about how important accurate theology and Bible doctrine is. People today even wear shirts of the reformers of yesteryear. But when that word of God comes upon something in your own life and threatens an idol of sorts that we trust in, whether it be money, lust, greed, worldliness, uh, our kids' success in bringing each of us glory. When that word of God comes upon something in your own life, not someone else's life, and is directed squarely upon our forehead and our heart and threatens a golden calf that we have constructed and held ever tightly to, that's when the fangs come out and the teeth are bared because we, in false religion, can love the prophets of old until a prophet speaks into the intimate details of how we are living. That's when we want to shut it up and destroy it. The chorus of prophets throughout the centuries whom God had repeatedly sent to his people join in just one voice, really, that we ought to repent from our sinful ways and turn to God with all our might, that he is everything. And everything else is nothing in comparison. This is the wisdom of God here to call people to this, even when he knows that the people might not respond to it. This is embodied in Abel from day one, when he offered a better offering to Yahweh than that of Cain, his brother. Abel knew God's everything. He gave me life. He gave me everything that I have. He's everything. Nothing compares to him. I will give to him my best. And Cain, his brother who didn't give his best, who just gave the leftovers, rather than repent at the sight of Abel's true worship, he kills Abel instead because Abel made Cain look bad. This is what Zechariah knew, and this is the wisdom of God when he perished between the altar and the sanctuary, that somehow love for God had truly been better than life, which we sometimes sing, and which comes from Psalm 63.3. But the twist is this that although these Pharisees and scribes were not there when Cain killed Abel and were not around in the time of Zechariah, that it is somehow that their deaths are charged to this generation because tombs are not the real issue. 
The real issue is a rejection of the word of God for their own lives. And all the while, while they admire the dead prophets, they are people like Cain, still offering sacrifices, and yet who murdered the true ones, who love to admire God in theory, but to hate to actually live out his word in real life when it threatens something they value within. It's hypocrisy to venerate the prophets and yet reject their heart and message. Now, why are they guilty of the blood of them all? Because the prophet of prophets is right there at their dinner table. Jesus is right there, and they can't stand him, and they will soon kill him as well. And to reject and get rid of the word incarnate is to reject and kill all who spoke concerning his coming. Every single one of them pointed to Christ. That was the purpose of their lives and their message. And these are the ones who will kill from top all the way to the bottom. The sufferings of the prophets really will culminate in the death of Jesus upon the cross. And so it is that when you reject God's word, you really reject God himself. And that is not a light thing. We must make no mistake about it. And a checkpoint for us again is to ask ourselves from time to time, are we just religious people who want the word in theory? We know it's a good thing generally. We love it when other people obey it. But when it comes to the intimate details of our own life, that's where we draw the line. No other gods before him? Yeah, for sure. But not the ones that I like for me. With our lips do we honor him and yet have our actual heart far from him. It's a checkpoint, brothers and sisters, to see if the outside is matching the inside or if we, again, are just whitewashed tombs. You know, notice uh, also that Jesus is uh, unafraid to speak of the consequences of such a lifestyle. He says in verse 48, you consent to the deeds of your fathers. The blood of all the prophets may be charged against this generation, verse 50. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation, verse 51. There's a a gravity that we need to feel of such a kind of living. Jesus does kind of point his long accusatory finger here Uh, But it is at the same time that Jesus gives to them an opportunity and really an invitation for repentance. He says, this is the problem. We all know the problem. And when the problem is made obvious, that's always an opportunity for repentance. It's always an invitation to change. Uh, I mean, what better opportunity to receive the message of all the prophets and at this point turn back to God and honor Jesus for who he is? The very best way to honor God's messengers is not by making fancy tombs and fancy churches, but to live in the way they taught us to live and to receive God's word and his law wholeheartedly. But they don't do that. And they're in deep rebellion against the God who sent them and sent Christ. And that, again, is not a light matter at all. And and so there is, again, a, a kind of religion that celebrates the idea of the word of God but does not want to hear or respond rightly to it who only likes it in theory, especially when it's about other people, but will not put it into practice when it is aimed at us right here. It's a woeful kind of religion of which will be found eternally guilty. Look at verse 52 at the third woe against these lawyers. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. Uh, This is the capstone and the biggest condemnation of them all, I think, Uh, The religious gurus, they never enter life eternal. And they actually hinder others from entering 
as well. They take away the key of knowledge. Uh, Like the Pharisees in verse 44 were unmarked graves which contaminated those who came into contact with them. Uh, The lawyers are those who actually take away the key to open the door to life. And in doing so, they not only damn themselves, but all the rest who follow in their footsteps. I think we do need to feel the weight of these words here. A false and hollow and, and hypocritical religion is not a private, uh, nor is it an individual affair. It does have ramifications on each of our souls, yes, absolutely, but there are ramifications upon the souls of the people we have influence over. If there's any greater wickedness than spiritual hypocrisy, it is a wickedness of duplicating that amongst the people around us your friends at church, your peers, uh, the unbelieving neighborhood getting the wrong idea of what Christianity is supposed to be like, your children who take their cues from you about what following Jesus is supposed to be like. If we make religion more about rules than about enjoying relationship with God, if we make our lives so that we would rather be known than to know God, if we looked at the proclaimed word of God as something to just tip our hats to but not something to respond radically to, if we have religion and yet are as worldly as ever, when we live like this and talk and eat and breathe like this, we prevent others from entering life. We prevent ourselves as well. This is a checkpoint for us again. Because at the end of the day, if we are in the business of deprioritizing God and not enjoying him and not basking in the glory of his love, but instead squeezing him into the margins because of other things which are more pressing and therefore more important and still say we are very religious. We're closing the door to life and we're taking the key away from others as well. Brothers and sisters, the text here, Jesus' words here are ever so clear and that this can be such a common occurrence within those who are most religious and among those who are the most churched that there will actually be many who do perish and take the people around them down with them. I don't want to soften this at all. Uh, A big part of uh, expository preaching is maintaining the tone of the text. And the last line is spoken to the ones who no one in the first century would ever guess would ever be spoken of them. The religious gurus, the spiritual experts, the most holy people we could ever imagine, Jesus says exactly to them, you did not enter yourselves and you hindered those who were entering. I think we have to let those words sink in because again, I don't think God gives us texts like this so that we can point the finger and shake our heads and think I'm so glad I'm not like that group of people over there. I think instead God gives us texts like these so that we might check ourselves to see if any bit of our own reflection and if our likeness is any similarity is found between us with them so that we might properly see ourselves and root out anything which may be woeful within because it is always easy, brothers and sisters, to honor God with our lips and yet have our hearts far from him. And because our lips are continuing to honor him, not to feel the perilous position at all. This is really a warning to the religious, perhaps a wake-up call to the church. And so this last woe, perhaps the greatest is, uh, greatest one is that they themselves do not enter and they hinder others from entering as well because they, by their words, their actions, their lifestyle, their influence, reject Jesus Christ and his messengers, taking away that key to knowledge. 
Now, at this point in the text, we would hope that there would be a response to Jesus' cutting and powerful words, the right response. Uh, but sadly and tragically, we find the entire group of religious folks doubling down in animosity. Verse 53, and he went away from there. The scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. You ever see an animal lying in wait? We have a dog in the backyard trying to catch lizards, lying in wait, trying to catch. It's not trying to pet the lizard. It's trying to bite it. There's no repentance here. They're lying in wait for Jesus, looking for anything that he might do. There's an increased desire to get rid of him, to catch him in something so that they could prosecute him and therefore kill him just like their forefathers did with the prophets of old. It's the same pattern, and it's utterly tragic. And that's how our text closes. Uh, And as we close the message, I want to make a couple of clarifications The first one is on uh, hypocrisy, uh, what it is and what it's not. There's no way that any of us will be perfect. None of us. None of us are going to be perfectly consistent inside out on this side of heaven. Sinless perfection awaits us in the next life. That's, That's not hypocrisy. There has to be, though, an integrity and a genuine and real love for Jesus Christ within every true believer. We all know what love is. Do we love Jesus? There has to be an agreement with what we profess and what we live. And if there is a disagreement, that had better bother us. And it should bother us a lot. And so there is no perfection on this side of heaven, but that imperfection is not what we call hypocrisy. Second, and this is uh, those for those, who, uh, those of us who are new here, and who are listening to a single sermon uh, in a series of them, uh, uh, isolated from the rest of them. Texts like these and messages like these, how heavy and uncomfortable as they may be, are not meant to be condemnation to death purely, but again, really an invitation to repentance and to life. Not by turning over a new leaf and trying to be a better person. Christianity is not a list of rules to follow. It is a person to believe in and put your trust in. At the end of the day, with our lives laid out before a holy God, none of us can measure up. And if the future of our eternal souls depended entirely upon how we each have lived our lives, we each are toast. But the Father sends a Son, perfect and holy, Totally unlike us, the Father sends a Son in love for God so loved the world that he sends his Son to die for the imperfect, the sinful, the unholy. This is the great exchange. It's the just for the unjust. And this is why the cross is so important, because the punishment God must mete out against sin. He can't just sweep it under the rug and be called holy and righteous. He has to punish it. The punishment God must mete out is laid upon Jesus in the believer's place, that the wrath of God against all unrighteousness is completely poured out. It's spent in full every last drop upon the one who does not deserve it so that the ones who do deserve it, they might have eternal life rather than eternal death. This is how Jesus dies. 
And this is why the resurrection is so important, because God raises him from the grave to defeat the power of both sin and death over us. And that resurrection also proves that his offering has been accepted. Christians are not the ones who try and follow the rules harder. They are ones who, by the conviction of the word, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we more and more understand God's amazing love for us and therefore want to live in love to the one who first loved us. Listen to Philip uh, Riken in his commentary. The obedience we offer is not some desperate attempt to gain God's favor, but a grateful response to the salvation he has provided through the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so it is that even in a text with a series of woes, it is when the word of God does convict us of sin that the grace of God is such that every conviction of sin and guilt can be an invitation to true life. And so our response can be the same as we had the very first time. Lord, I need you. I repent. I've been on this wrong trajectory. I've been living the wrong way. I need change. I want to enjoy you more than I want to enjoy anything else. I want you, God, change me from the inside out. Bring me close to you. I want to believe what I really believe and not have that be only lips deep. Would you please join me in prayer? Oh, Father, we thank you for your word, even in a word full of woes. Lord, by your spirit, would you use it to show us the beauty and wonder of Jesus, uh, that he might become everything to us, that everything else would grow strangely dim. God, we repent. We repent of all the ways that we belittle you, uh, deprioritize you, push you to the margins. Uh, thank you for helping uh, some of us feel uncomfortable in doing that. Thank you for drawing a line in the sand, so to speak, so that we wouldn't continue to do that with ease. Uh, would you arrest us and confront us and bring us life, bring us joy, show us how your word can be honey and more to be desired than the finest gold. Show us how Jesus Christ and fellowship with him is absolutely everything in this life and in the next one. Would you do that for our church family here? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.